Well, sin will take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, cost you more than you want to pay, and keep you longer than you want to stay. Gary Enrig says, one of the great lies of Satan is that sin is liberating. Come on, try it. You'll like it. Why are you tied up with all those old-fashioned ideas of morality? Live a little. Cut loose. Be free. But the truth is that sin enslaves. Jesus tells us that in John 8, 38, where he says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Most of us can look at our own lives. We can see the truth of that as we've fallen into times of sin ourselves, and we've seen what that means. And today, as we turn in our Bible to Judges chapter 4, we're going to see that yet again, the nation of Israel once again turns into a time of slavery because they turn their back on God. As we look at Judges chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3, it says, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hatzor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Haguim. And the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots. And he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. In Judges, we've seen this cycle over and over already. You're beginning to be able to pick it out on your own. And we see here that once again, Israel sins. And God says, because of that, I need to discipline my people. I need to drive them back to me. So they go into this time of slavery. In time, after 20 years, they cry out to God. They ask for his help. And he sends in his mercy and grace a deliverer for them. He raises up this woman, Deborah. Uh, in order to be the judge who will lead the people. And there's a time of salvation that ultimately leads to a, a period of rest. They had been in a time of rest under Ehud. For 80 years, they had been at peace. But they chose instead to again turn back into sin, and the cycle repeats itself over and over. This time, they're in a time of captivity under Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Now, on this map, you see that this is a city north of the Sea of Galilee. And as you read in Joshua 11.11, you see that back when the General Joshua led the nation into the land the first time to conquer it, that city was, was captured. It was burned to the ground. And yet, because the Israelites did not do what God had said and drove the enemy out of the land, they've, they've rebuilt the city. And now it's a center of operations that they're using to oppress the Israelites. The commander over the army is Sisera. We see he's living in a nearby city, uh, Harosheth HaGoyim, which literally means the city of the Gentiles. It was located in the area of Megiddo, which you see on this map is in the, the southwestern end of the Jezreel Valley. Now, Megiddo and this area we're talking about has future implications. This is where the Battle of Armageddon will take place. The Hebrew word Har, which means mountain, Har Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. This is where the, the nations are going to gather for that climactic battle in the end times. But here we see that uh, they're gathered in this area, and you'll notice I've also highlighted Mount Tabor, or Tavor, as uh, the Jews call it. And so this is a nice flat area, as you see in this picture, giving you the, the lay of the land. It's a valley area that, that has wide open, sweeping, flat areas that these 900 chariots would be able to maneuver freely. They could control the entire valley as these battle tanks of the day uh, ma maneuvered around and could keep any army at bay. 
Chariots were the top-of-the-line weapon. Uh, here you see an artist's rendition of what they would look like in that day. They had archers on them so they could take out infantry and, and other defensive positions at a distance. They would have blades on the wheels. So as the, the chariots would move through a line of infantry, it would literally be cutting the legs out from under the soldiers. They had spears that were sticking out from the sides of the chariot that would impale and the horses would trample uh, foot soldiers. The Israelites not only lacked these top-of-the-line weapons, but as you look at Judges 5.8, it says not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. They didn't even have the most basic equipment. They didn't have even hand weapons to go against these battle tanks and the, the built-up army of the enemy. So humanly speaking, things are hopeless. The Jews are a conquered, defeated people. They're facing a seasoned fighting force who were armed to the teeth. But everything was about to change because one plus God equals a majority. And we see in verse 3 that they cry out to God. And in his grace, he raises up a deliverer for them. Now, as they face this enemy and they're asking God for help, they were probably hoping for somebody like Othniel. You'll remember in Judges chapter 1 and again in chapter 3, we saw this seasoned warrior who was raised up to lead the nation in battle. But as we talked about last week, when God goes to war, he often chooses the most unlikely soldiers, hands them the most unusual weapons, and through them accomplishes the most unpredictable results. And we see that happening again here in verses 4 and 5 as it says, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now as we look at what's said about Deborah, we're told she's in this area of Ramah. And as you look at the map, that's in the tribal allotment that was given to Ephraim. So some say, well, maybe she was from the tribe of Ephraim. But later in Judges 5.15, she's going to be described as being among the princes of Issachar. So it's not clear which of the tribes she's from in that area. Deborah's name means honeybee, and she's married to a man named Lapidoth. His name means a torch or a light. And in Judges 5-7, we're going to see where Deborah refers to herself as a mother in Israel, which means she has children, even though we're not told uh, any particulars about her family. Now, I'm highlighting these things because sometimes women in our day, women in our society are told that if you're serving in the God-given role as a wife or as a mother, that somehow you're insignificant. But I want us to notice that as God is talking about this extraordinary woman, he makes sure to highlight these God-given roles of being a wife and a mother alongside another God-given role of being a prophetess and a judge. The role of a prophet or prophetess was to speak for God on the basis of something he had made known. It could relate to something in the present day or it might be a future-looking event. And in the Old Testament, we find there are other women who are mentioned as having this God-given gift in office. An example is in Exodus 15, 20, where Miriam, the sister of Moses, is called a prophetess. In 2 Kings 22:14, 14, uh, Huldah is a woman who spoke for God during the days of King Josiah. Noiaidia is mentioned in Nehemiah 6, 14, and in the New Testament, in Luke 2, 36, there was a seasoned saint by the name of Anna that you'll remember was there in the temple when the baby Jesus was brought for his dedication. And in Acts 21, we find there are the four daughters of Philip who all serve God in this way. 
So Deborah was used by God as these other women were throughout time as well to speak for God. She served as an instrument for justice as well. We see in verse 5, the people are coming to present their cases. God had gifted her with great wisdom and discernment. Deborah is serving both as a judicial and political leader in Israel during this time. And it's very significant because aside from Deborah, only one other person in the scriptures, Samuel, held these dual roles of a prophet and a judge. So we see she was an exceptional woman in her gifting and her calling. There's a man by the name of Jack Handy. He wrote a book called Fuzzy Moments. In it, he says, there used to be this bully who would demand my lunch money every day at school. Since I was smaller, I would give it to him. And then one day I decided to fight back. I started to take karate lessons, but the instructor wanted $5 a lesson, which was a lot of money. I found out it was cheaper to pay the bully, so I gave up karate. <laughs> I wonder how many of us are a little bit like Jack, where we've decided to pay the bully. We look at the day in which we live and we say, things are not right. We're suffering, society is suffering. But we're saying, you know, it's cheaper just to pay the bully. Rather than battling back and trying to defeat him, we take the path of least resistance. We give in to the enemy and we go along like many were doing in the day of Deborah. But Deborah said, I will stand for God. I will stand against injustice. And as she did that, God raised her up. He gifted her. He equipped her. And what we read in Judges 5, 6 through 7 is, in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and travelers went by roundabout ways. The peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, until I arose a mother in Israel. As I mentioned a moment ago, Deborah was a woman of great wisdom. And wisdom and great leadership knows that you don't try to do things all alone. You don't try to solve problems alone. God is very clear that we are not alone when we face things in the world, as we face things in our society. Uh, You read in Ecclesiastes where it tells us a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. God doesn't want us trying to go it alone. God tells us as believers in Christ, we are not alone. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. He empowers us. He, He fills and leads us. And as believers in Christ, we're we're not to try to deal with things alone. We're part of a body. The scriptures tell us a body that is made up of many parts and many different gifts. And as Deborah is serving in this role as as judge and prophetess, she knows that the, the best thing a leader can do is find the person who's best gifted in another area, and so she goes under God's guiding to call this, this man Barak to be the, the commander of the military. Now his name means lightning. Maybe it described his personality. Maybe it was pointing to some past military campaign that he uh, led or served. Whatever it is, uh, he's a man who is skilled uh, to lead the army. So verses 6 through 7 tell us, She sent and summoned Barak, the son of uh, Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go and march to Mount Tabor and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali, from the sons of Zebulun. And I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon. And I will give him into your hand. So the Jewish army is raised up from this area around Ramah. 
This is where the tribal allotment of Naphtali and Zebulun were. So she's in this area. God raises up the army to confront the enemy uh, from those who are, who are there. And uh, as I said, this man Barak, this lightning warrior, is called to be the leader. Now, in spite of all of his background or personality, we see he's fearful. He's hesitant, as are the people in that day. They're, they're, they're facing this fierce foe who's well-equipped. So what Deborah does is she reminds them of who God is, of his power and his promises. She says, God will fight for you. God is going to draw Sisera and his army out. He will give them into your hand. You know, something we can draw from this and need to remember in in our lives is God is never going to give us an assignment without giving us what we need to accomplish the assignment. God will never give you an assignment without providing the provision or the power in order to effectively do it. You know, so many of us as believers are, are fearful, not just of what's happening in the world around us, but even just in sharing our faith. I talk to so many Christians who say, Roger, I, I don't share my faith because I'm afraid I'll mess it up. And I always tell them, well, you're not that good. You can't keep somebody from coming to God. It's not our job to lead anybody to the Lord. It's our job to share the good news of the gospel. And the scriptures are clear. God is the one who draws all men and women to himself. It's your job and mine to be the one who shares the good news. He called us to do that. He says in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have a wonderful example of that right here is Colonel Hugler and his wife, Uh, are here investing in discipling these military chaplains from so many countries around our world. He's building into, he's discipling. They're sharing the good news so that these men are equipped to go back and impact the militaries and the police forces in their nations. And what God tells us is, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, you have my power, you have my enablement. The Holy Spirit indwells us as believers. So in those times where we find ourselves fearful or reluctant, remember that with God's call also comes his enablement. Now, even knowing that truth, there may be times we're reluctant or fearful as we face a tough assignment or we go through troubling times. I can tell you as a pastor, there are times I'm like, I don't know that I want to share the truth. I don't know that I want to stand for that. I don't know that I want to speak up. But in those times, I'm reminding myself of who God is and what he's called me to do, just as he's called and equipped each of you to do. Now, even when we're aware of that, as I said, we may be fearful. We see this happening with Barak in verse 8, as it says, Then he said to, to Deborah, If you go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, then I will not go. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled about Barak and his lack of faith, and I'm not going to pile in in that group. Yes, we look at his hesitancy here, but we also find his name written in the, in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, you will read about men and women of the past who are listed as the heroes of the faith. And Barak's name is there in Hebrews 11.32. The list also contains the name of Gideon, who's a, another reluctant leader that we're going to meet in Judges chapter 6 and 8. 
And so there, there are all kinds of people in that list who God used greatly, even when they struggled with God's call. So if you're a person who says, you know, I'm reluctant or I'm afraid, you're in good company. It doesn't mean that you can't be used by God. Don't give up. But instead, cling to what God says and what he tells us in 2 Corinthians 3, 5. There it says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. You see, Deborah tells uh, Barak here, you already have all you need. You have God's promise. You have God's power. She says, if you require me to go, I will go. But your conditional obedience is going to cost you, as we see in verses 9 through 10. She says, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to to Kadesh, and 10,000 men went up with him. Deborah also went up with him. So the stage is now set for the big battle, or almost, because in verse 11, we're given a little bit more information that we're going to need later in the story. It says in verse 11, now, Heber, the Canaanite, had separated himself from the Canaanites, from the sons of Havav, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanim, which is near Kadesh. If you go back and look at Judges 1.16, you'll see that the Canaanites are mentioned back in chapter 1. They were the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. They were called the Canaanites because that name literally means a smith or a blacksmith. They were part of a nomadic group Uh, but they were also skilled uh, blacksmiths. And as you read the scriptures, you see that most of the Canaanites had attached themselves to the tribe of Judah, which was way down in the south. Remember where Hatzor was north of the Sea of Galilee. So the clan of the Canaanites were far to the south, but here uh, Hebrews living up near the the oak of Zanim, which is up in the area where the tribe of Naphtali was. Now, Heber is there not because he loves the Lord and is loyal to them. He's there because he loves money. He's there because that's where the enemy is. That's where the the army that has iron chariots, that has shields and swords and spears and weapons are located to the north. Remember, the conquered Israelites, as we read, didn't even have a shield or a spear among 40,000. So rather than being down with the Jews where he would only have piecemeal work of working on a plow or a a hand tool here or there, he says, I'm going to go to where uh, there's a lot of work. It doesn't matter that it's the enemy that I'm working for. He turns his back on God. He turns his back on his family clan to fraternize with the enemy. And he moves up to the north to work on the weapons and iron chariots that belong to this enemy. As you think about what Hebner's doing, I wonder how many times some of us have done the same thing. Where we said, you know, the world offers me all these opportunities. It just means I have to turn my back on God. It just means I have to make a few compromises. It just means I have to uh, fraternize with the enemy, so to speak, instead of standing for the Lord. In those times where maybe you're tempted to throw in with what the world offers instead of standing for God, I want you to remember that the passing pleasures that the world offers you will ultimately fail. Those things that the world gives you will one day be burned up. 
And not only will the things that you're, you're chasing after not last, uh, there is also the, the opportunity for you to go deeper and deeper into compromise and sin as you pursue the world and its things. This is what happens with uh, Hebrew, as we see in verse 12. Because what happens is he reports the gathering of the Israelite army to the enemy commander Sisera, who in turn mobilizes his massive army, as we see in verse 13. And Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and the people who were with him, from Harosheth Haguim to the river Kishon. On this slide, you see what Mount Tabor looks like in our day. Uh, you see that it's, it rises up from the valley, flatland completely around it, and that white stuff are homes in a city that have been built up around the base. But in the day when we're reading about here in Judges, that would have been an open area with maybe a sporadic uh, house or two here and there. And so... As the Jews are gathered up on the slopes, they, they have a clear view of the valley below. And as the sun is shining, it, it's glinting off these 900 iron chariots. As they see the massed army with their weapons and their shields and their spears, the sun is shining off that. And it's just a reminder to them not only of how outnumbered they are, but how outgunned they are. Because remember, not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. And so as they look at this, they're reminded of, of how desperate their situation is. Now, if you're thinking, well, at least they had the high ground. They had the strategic high ground. But remember what it meant is they were completely surrounded. They're cut off from any possible resupply, any reinforcements. They're trapped. Their location had also become a liability. And if you were up there on the side of that mountain, you might have turned to Deborah and said, are you sure this is the plan God had for us? I know, I know you talk to God, you speak for God. Uh, is this really what he wanted? And the answer is absolutely. God had his army exactly where he wanted them, utterly and completely dependent on him. They would know without a doubt where their deliverance would come from. As Psalm, 20 verse, Psalm chapter 20, verse 7 tells us, some boast in chariots, some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. And in the next section, we see why Barak's name is in the hall of faith. Because against these odds, as he stands up there as a commander saying, this is going to be pitched battle where we're rushing into this well-equipped enemy as we come down the side of the mountain, he takes his army into battle anyway. He says, I trust God. And he rushes down the mountain in a lightning charge, as we see in verses 14 through 16. And Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord God has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and he fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. It's the Israelites who should have been slaughtered that day. As they came down off the side of the mountain, uh, they should have been wiped out. But because of what we see in verse 15, the Lord was fighting. It says the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army. This word translated as routed literally means to cause confusion. 
God throws the army into confusion. It's the same word found in Exodus 14.24 that describes the confusion and defeat of the Egyptian army when Pharaoh led his massive uh, army and chariots against the Israelites. And they were wi- the, the Egyptian army was wiped out at the Red Sea. It's what we find in Joshua 10.10 when the southern confederation of kings were defeated against all odds. When we look at the victory song next week in Judges 5, 20 through 21, this is what we're going to read. The stars fought from heaven. From their course they fought against Sisera. The torrent of Kishon swept them away. As the Israelites come down the mountain, being led by this lightning commander, there were flashes of lightning in the sky. The torrent is a rainstorm that came. God sends this this downpour of rain and a wall of water comes rushing through the valley. The Kishon River overflows its banks and it washes away a portion of the army. And for, for the part of the army that didn't get swept away in the flash flood, others were bogged down in the mud. This is an actual picture from the Jezreel Valley from the early uh, late 1800s, early 1900s of an army that was bogged down because of the a rain that had flooded and, and turned the valley into mud. So you can see what happened to these heavily armored iron chariots. These battle tanks just suddenly were bogged down in the mud. They couldn't maneuver. They were sitting ducks. And these lightly armed Israelites were able to run up and just wipe out uh, these, these weapons of the enemy. Not only had the weapons of the pagan army failed them, but so too had their false god. I want to remind you that the Canaanites chief god was named Baal. And in previous sermons and judges, we talked about who Baal was. He was supposed to be the god who controlled the weather. Baal was the fertility god who brought the rain on the land. And so he was the guy supposedly who controlled whether it was sunshine or rain. But the true god Jehovah, Yahweh, is the one who controls everything. And he said, your god is supposed to control the rain. I'm going to turn the rain against you. I'm going to wipe out your army with this wall of water that comes from the heavens. What's left of the Canaanite army is being cut down as they try to flee to the south, and General Sisera abandons his army, and he sets out on foot all by himself heading to the north, trying to get back to Hazor and King Jabin. And as Sisera flees on foot, he's exhausted. He's, he, he's struggling to get there. So when he sees the tent of Heber, this, this ally of the enemy, this traitor, he's happy because he thinks he's found a safe place to rest. Verses 17 through 22 tell us, Now Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Canaanite, for there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Canaanite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink, and then she covered him. And he said to her, stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, is there anyone here, that you shall say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand. And she went secretly to him, and she drove the peg into his temple, and it went through into the ground, for he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. Again, y'all think the Bible's boring. (laughs) 
And behold, as Barak pursued, Sisera, Jael, came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. Now what Jael does here goes against all the rules of hospitality, right? <laughs> and you're saying, well, Roger, that is, <laughs> that is an understatement. But I want to remind you of Middle Eastern culture. Middle Eastern culture said that if you invited somebody into your home, you were now responsible to offer the protection of the home. Those of you who have served in the Middle East know what this is like. If you've ever read the story of uh, the lone survivor, the, the Navy SEAL team that was invited into the village, the village then became responsible for providing protection. So when Jael says to Sisera, come into my tent and gives him food and covering, uh, he says, I'm safe. She's obligated under the culture of the day to, to give him protection. And so we read something like this and we say, well, she was, what's she doing? She's going against all the norms. She's going against all the culture, all the societal standards. And what she's doing is she's saying there is a higher standard, that of God. Israel was at war with this enemy. God had given very clear commands in Deuteronomy 7.2, Deuteronomy 20.16, Joshua 6.17, to exterminate the enemy in the land. And so as, as he comes into her, her home, she says, I will do what God says to do rather than what society says to do. You know, if Israel had done what God said to do, we wouldn't even be reading this story. Israel wouldn't have been under 20 years of captivity as a consequence of their disobedience to God. If they had just followed what God had said, there would have been peace and rest in the land all those years. In Judges 5.24, Jael is called blessed among the women in the tents. It's telling you that as a Bedouin woman, she lived in tents. The, the women were the ones responsible for pitching the tents and taking them down. Now, friends, this isn't like the little tent you put on your back when you go backpacking and you pitch it and it has a little tiny tent peg. These were, you know, like big Baker Army tents. These were large tents. The spikes that were used would have been, you know, big, long rails. And the people who were responsible for pitching the tents and taking them down were the women. The men were out keeping the flocks. The women were the ones who were used to handling the hammer and the stakes. And so she takes this, this big stake and she puts it on his temple and hammers it in. She's skilled with this because it's a common everyday tool of hers. It's like what we talked about last week when we looked at Shamgar and the ox goad in Judges uh, 3.31. You remember that the, the ox goad was the farmer's tool. It's what you use to prod along the oxen and clean the plow in the field. And Shamgar was a peasant farmer using an everyday implement of his job. And it's the same with this woman, Jael. She's, she's a Bedouin woman who keeps the, the, the tent up and down. And she says, this is something I use every day. Jael made the courageous choice to follow God, to go against the cultural norms, as well as to go against the compromises of her husband. She went against the compromises of her husband. Sometimes people are wrongly told, will you follow uh, the lead of your spouse, whether it's against God or not? That's not what those scriptures tell us. 
As we've talked about scripture and biblical submission and what all that means, remember there is a chain of command. The Greek word hupotasso that means to submit literally speaks of a military chain of command. And God is the one at the very top. And so if you have a spouse who is not honoring God, you honor God first. And when you give honor to your spouse, you're ultimately honoring God. And J.L. says, I will go against the societal uh, wrongs and I will go against the compromises of my family. And God is calling on us today as men and women, boys and girls, to be the same. God is looking for those who are willing to be countercultural Christians, who will stand for God and do what is right, even when others won't. God doesn't want us to be paper soldiers who play church. God doesn't want us to be dead fish who go along with the flow. A dead fish will float downstream. God calls on us to swim upstream, to stand for Christ, to stand for what is right. Friends, are you in the fight or are you just going along with the flow? Are you a dead fish who's being carried along by the current? Or are you standing for Christ? As we look at our story, it comes to a close with God being given the proper credit for Israel's victory. And in Judges 5.31, after a mop-up operation, after that's complete, it says Israel will experience peace for 40 years. Once again, we see how God has used a common everyday person with a common everyday tool in their hand to change the course of history for the nation at that time. The strong and the weak, the prominent and the unknown are used to do God's work. And as you think about the impossible situation Israel was facing, I want you to think about the day in which we live. Men and women, you may be looking at the world around us and saying, what can we do? What can I as a believer in Christ do to stand against the cultural decay of our our day? What can I do to stand against the wrongs that I see in society? As we began this study in Judges, I told you we are going to see men and women, common everyday people who stood for God in the midst of the time that they were in and they made a difference. And the same is true for us today. Whether we're talking about Shamgar, whether we're talking about JL, common everyday people using whatever is in their hand, whether we're talking about those in places of leadership like Deborah or military leaders like Barak, we can be used by God if we're willing to stand up, if we're willing to turn to him. As you look at your life, as you look at what you're facing, if you're feeling hopeless, if you feel it can't make a difference, you can't make a difference in the world in which we live, I want you to look at the cross. I want you to look at the cross and be reminded there was another time that a hammer and some spikes were used to bring about deliverance. They were not driven through the the temple. Instead, they were driven through the palms and the feet of a man named Jesus Christ, the one who was the Son of God, who left his throne in heaven to come to earth, to take on flesh and blood, to walk among uh, the, the depravity and the decay and the muck and mire, the mess our world was in. And Jesus went to the cross. He willingly gave his life, shedding his blood to be the payment for your sins and mine. Through a hammer and spikes that were used to be driven through the hands and feet of the Son of God, the penalty of death was paid in full. Sin, death, and Satan were conquered. And you can say, well, Roger, he was God. And I want to remind you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you have God resident within you. 
2 Corinthians 3.16 tells you, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Lord and the Spirit of God dwells within you? We have the power, the presence, and the promise of God that he will go with us. As he told us in Matthew, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So God calls on us wherever we are, in our schools, our workplaces, where we serve in the military, in the neighborhoods in which we live. He says, I've raised you up, common everyday men and women, boys and girls, to be used to be salt and light, to stand against the decay of society, to bring about deliverance as you share the good news of the gospel. But it all begins with us having to first come to Christ, having first to realize that we are slaves to sin, that we need to cry out, that we need to turn to God in repentance and ask for him to deliver us through a Savior, his Son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate deliverer who came, the one who offers us peace and rest, The one who says that when we come to faith in Christ, we are invited into the family. As Romans 10, 9 tells us, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God offers you the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. He offers you rest, not just eternal rest one day when we get home to heaven, but even peace in the midst of the storm. So if you're here today, if you're worshiping online and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, what's keeping you from taking that step today? Is it a fear of what you'll face? Is it a fear of a family member, a boyfriend, a girlfriend who will reject you? Is it a fear that you'll lose your promotion at work or in the military? Is it a fear uh, of what it will cost you, the the passing pleasures of the world that you enjoy? when you stand for Christ, when you come to Christ? Friends, what's keeping you from turning to Jesus today, from accepting his gift of grace? God offers you that gift if you will turn to him, if you will accept his son, Jesus. As we go to the Lord in prayer, if you've never taken that step of faith and you're ready to do so, simply say to God, God, I'm a sinner. That means you're acknowledging that you've done some things wrong in your life. You haven't been perfect The Bible tells us all of us have sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us as sinners, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. When we accept his death in our place, we are welcomed into the family. And so if you've never accepted his son, as we go to God in prayer now, say to him, God, I'm turning from my sin into you, Jesus, to be my Savior. I accept your death in my place. I believe you rose from the dead after you were crucified, showing you conquered sin and death, and I accept you today to be my Savior. And for the rest of us who have done that, God calls on us to stand for him in the world, in the places he has us, to be like J.L., to be like Deborah, to be like Barak, to be men and women who will stand for Christ in the midst of the society in which we live. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word that points us to who you are and how much you love us. How you didn't leave us or forsake us even when we turned our back on you. God, you continue to pursue us. You continue to wait for us to turn to you. God, no matter how far we've run from you, if we turn around today, we will find you are right there. 
you have been waiting for us. Your arms are open wide, ready to receive us. Lord, there's none of us who have made too big of a mess of our life that you can't redeem us. You tell us in Romans 5.8 that you demonstrated your love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, you, Christ, died for us. A hammer and nails was used to bring redemption as your blood was shed on the cross. We've read today, God, how a, a hammer and a, a nail was used as well to bring redemption through the hands of a woman who was willing to stand for you and trust in you and do what was right. We thank you, God, for the example of women like Deborah and J.L. who show us what we can do when we turn to you. We thank you, God, for a man like Barak who shows us even when our faith is faltering, we can be used if we will just trust in you. Would you strengthen us now, God? Would you use us for your glory in the places you have us? We pray these things in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ.